Barack Obama went to a mosque yesterday, and he loves, loves, loves Islam. We'll talk about that. Plus, Hillary Clinton does a town hall event at which she lets the mask slip, and it's clearly Satan under. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The honest, tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Well, there's so much going on in the news. There was a big town hall last night with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, an old man shrieking at the moon, and an old woman desperately trying to cling with those arthritis-ridden fingers to that last gasp of fame and fortune. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. And we will also get to perhaps the most awkward... 45 seconds of television in a long time with Rick Santorum. But before we get to that, President Obama, uh, he, he went to the Islamic Society of Baltimore to give a speech. And President Obama has basically at this point just become a troll from Salon.com. He's just a commenter at Salon.com. All he does with his pathetic, perverse, failing presidency is he goes around and he does stuff to tick off right-wingers, conservatives, and people with brain cells left after his explosive and terrible regime. So, President Obama heads to the Islamic Society of Baltimore. The former imam there, the guy who was the imam just before this one, he was there for 18 years, he told the Washington Post that Palestinian suicide bombing was just fine and dandy, uh, and he has terrorist connections, all the rest of it. Well, President Obama went there, but he didn't talk about terrorism and its connection to Islam. Instead, he lectured Americans about how we were mean and terrible and awful. It's really our fault that there's a problem of Islamic terror or that we even perceive a problem of Islamic terror here is our nasty, brutish, and rather annoying president of the United States in Baltimore speaking about Islam. The Muslim American community remains relatively small, so several million people in this country. And as a result, most Americans don't necessarily know, or at least don't know that they know, a Muslim personally. And as a result, many only hear about Muslims and Islam from the news after an act of terrorism or in distorted media portrayals in TV or film, all of which gives this hugely distorted impression. And since 9-11, but more recently since the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, you've seen too often People conflating the horrific acts of terrorism with the beliefs of an entire faith. And of course, recently we've heard inexcusable political rhetoric against Muslim Americans that has no place in our country. Okay, you can pause it there. No place in our country. No place in our country. Okay, I was under the impression that pretty much all speech has a place in our country, that we get to say what we want. It doesn't mean everybody has to agree or has to like you because of it. But rhetoric has no place in our country. This is a new one. This is a new one. And President Obama, I mean, when he says that, you know, there's a tiny number of Muslims in the country, you don't all know Muslims, and so people tend to have bad ideas about Muslims. Well, there's another reason that people tend to have bad ideas about global Islam and Muslims, and it's because 99.9% of all suicide bombings last year were carried out by Muslims, and Muslims in the United States are by percentage 5,000% more likely than your average American to carry out some sort of terror attack. So there's that. Okay, the fact is that Muslims comprise approximately 1% of the population, and they're responsible for approximately 50% of all of the terrorist attacks, depending on how you define it, over the last 15 years, and they're responsible for probably 95% of all terror deaths in the United States, if you include September 11th. So there's that. But it's all just a misconception, according to President Obama, and it's pushed by TV. Okay, I don't know what TV he's watched recently, but, you know, for example, I watched the show The Blacklist. My wife and I watched the show The Blacklist. There has never one time, we're, we're now almost done with season two, there has yet to be an episode in which a radical Muslim was the bad guy. It doesn't happen. But there is a Muslim who works inside the unit that's tar tra tasked with targeting bad guys, and this is pretty common on TV. You're more likely to find that a terrorist, a really bad guy, is an upper-class white man who listens to classical music then you are to find that it's somebody who goes to mosque regularly on television. But President Obama says it's all just cultural. You're being indoctrinated by the media. It's amazing how the same president who says that Hollywood is not left and the media is not left and that they don't indoctrinate you in leftism says that that media indoctrinates you in negative feelings about Islam and radical Islam. Again, when he says inexcusable political rhetoric, I assume that he's talking about Donald Trump who says that he wants to ban Muslim immigrants to the country for the moment until he can figure out what's going on. 
I'm just wondering why it is that President Obama is so sanguine and he's so fine with saying that Christians are bitter clingers who cling to gods and gun, God and guns. Why President Obama is so fine with forcing nuns to provide contraceptive care. Why the President of the United States is happy to use the government to crack down on Christians who won't provide their services to same-sex weddings. So uh, apparently only certain religions are, are to be protected from this sort of inflammatory political rhetoric. And, you know, like shining gay flags on the White House. Only certain religions are to be protected uh, from that sort of thing, and that doesn't include Christianity or, or Judaism, by the way. When Jews get killed in Paris, then that's just a random attack. But Muslims are under attack. I think, first of all, this whole premise is really insulting, that Muslims are under attack in the United States. 60% of all anti-religious attacks in the United States happen to my folks, the Jews. 13% happen to Muslims. Okay, there are approximately the same number of Muslims and Jews in the United States, according to the latest census figures. So, but but th this whole thing is designed to, so that President Obama can paint himself as the great wise master of all tolerance and all of his enemies as intolerant, nasty folks. President Obama continues along these lines thanking Muslim Americans. Here we go. So the first thing I want to say is two words that Muslim Americans don't hear often enough, and that is thank you. Thank you for serving your community. Thank you for lifting up the lives of your neighbors and for helping keep us strong and united as one American family. Uh, we, are, we are grateful for that. Okay, so thank you for, for doing normal things that people do. <laughs> I wasn't aware that you get a thank, a thank you for not being a terrorist. This is, this is a, a dramatic reshifting of standards. Thank you for participating in normal activities that, that virtually all Americans participate in. By the way, in less numbers than most Americans participate in them. So when President Obama says, Muslim Americans, thank you for serving in the military. Yes, th seriously, thank you to the Muslim Americans who serve in the military. Also, there are, more Muslim there are more Muslim people in Britain who joined ISIS than joined the British military. So if we're talking about the global threat of Islam, one seems more troublesome than the other. Just pointing that out. President Obama continues along these lines, and it turns out that not only is Trayvon Martin President Obama's fictional child, not only would he not want his fictional child playing football, but he has a fictional child who's Muslim as well, which is really interesting. Here we go. President Obama on his fictional family, which grows with each speech. But you also could not help but be heartbroken to hear their worries and their anxieties. Some of them are parents, and they talked about how their children were asking, are we going to be forced out of the country? Are we are, are we going to be rounded up? Why do people treat us like that? Conversations that you shouldn't have to have with children. Not in this country. Not at this moment. And that's an anxiety echoed in letters I get from Muslim Americans around the country. I've had people write to me and say, I feel like I'm a second-class citizen. I've had mothers write and say, my heart cries every night thinking about how our daughter might be treated at school. A girl from Ohio, 13 years old, told me, I'm scared. A girl from Texas signed her letter, a confused 14-year-old trying to find her place in the world. These are children just like mine. Okay. So. Mr. President, you seem to have very little care about the Jewish kids who are killed all over the place in Europe or in Israel, and you care very little about the anti-Semitic attacks in the United States. In fact, as I mentioned, those are wildly disproportionate, but when Obama mentioned anti-Semitism the other day, he promptly followed that up with the statement that Jews have to be careful not to victimize Muslims, that the Muslims are the new Jews, essentially. This is the case the President of the United States makes. Who's talking about shipping Muslims out of the country? Did I miss it? Is there any person who's not a white supremacist who's, who's talking about this? Is there any major personage who's talking about shipping Muslims out of the country or interning Muslims? Is there anybody who's doing this? Is there anybody who's said that targeting Muslim children is okay? All this fantastical nonsense that he's pushing out there to push forward the notion of Muslim victimhood. Let me tell you something. None of this is going to actually protect Americans or Muslim Americans. Because all it does is it really ticks people off. All it does is it makes people feel like the president is out of touch with their actual needs and that he's out of touch with the actual threat to Americans. The actual threat to Americans is not a bunch of roving white people with pitchforks and torches 
who are looking to burn down mosques. That's not the real threat to Americans, including Muslim Americans. I mean, it's the president of the United States who's constantly saying the real threat to Muslims all over the world is other Muslims. That's why he says Islam has nothing to do with Muslim violence. Suddenly you come to the United States and it's white Christians who are the real problem. I don't want to hear any more of his anecdotal evidence about he gets letters from people. I get letters from people too. Anybody in a position of public prominence gets letters from people. That doesn't mean that anecdotal evidence is a substitute for statistical evidence. You feeling put upon doesn't mean, number one, that you're actually put upon, or number two, that your experience is representative. Now, when I was in middle school, I went to Walter Reed Middle School, and I used to wear my yarmulke to middle school, and I used to get made fun of wearing my yarmulke to middle school. Was it the end of the world? Was it, did I feel the need to write George W. Bush or Bill Clinton at the time and tell him, oh, I'm so victimized at my public school? No. And guess what? Generations of Americans didn't feel the need to do that either. But we've now created this, this virtue-signaling presidency where President Obama ain't going to do anything about any of this. He's just going to say stuff. And by saying this stuff, what he's really saying is, I'm a wonderful person, and everybody who could possibly think that I'm wrong on the nature of Islam and radical Islam is a crazy, terrible Islamophobe. It's really gross. It really is gross. And, and President Obama continues the myth-making here. He, uh, he then says that Islam is a part of American history. Here we go. President Obama continuing. And like so many faiths, Islam is rooted in a commitment to compassion and mercy and justice <laughs> and charity. <laughs> oh. Whoever wants to enter paradise, the Prophet Muhammad taught, let him treat people the way he would love to be treated. Looking at great for Muslims, and, Jews, and Christians all over the world. For Christians like myself, I'm assuming that sounds familiar. <laughs> the world's 1.6 billion Muslims are as diverse as humanity itself. They are Arabs and Africans. They're from Latin America to Southeast Asia. Brazilians, Nigerians, Bangladeshis, Indonesians. They are white and brown and black. There's a large African-American Muslim community. That diversity is represented here today. A 14-year-old boy in Texas uh, who's Muslim spoke for many when he wrote to me and said, we just want to live in peace. So here's another fact. Islam has always been part of America. Starting in colonial times, many of the slaves brought here from Africa were Muslim. And even in their bondage, some kept their faith alive. A few even won their freedom and became known to many Americans. And when enshrining the freedom of religion in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights, our founders meant what they said when they said it applied to all religions. You know, back then, Muslims were often called uh, Mohammedans. And Thomas Jefferson explained that the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, he wrote, was designed to protect all faiths. And I'm quoting Thomas Jefferson now, the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan. Okay, let me pause it there. He goes on to say that Jefferson and John Adams had their own copies of the Quran. He didn't quote what they said about the Quran, by the way, what Jefferson and John Adams had to say about the Quran. Jefferson and Adams had to deal with the Barbary Pirates, or a group of African Muslims who were targeting American shipping. Here's what Jefferson and Adams once said about their dealings with Muslim pirates, quote, the ambassador answered us that the right to take American ships was founded on the laws of the prophet, that it was written in the Quran, that all nations who should not have answered their authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found, and to make slaves of all they could take as prisoners, and that every Muslim who should be slain in battle was sure to go to paradise. Muslim was another name for Muslim. And so, there you have it, the, the same people that, that Obama is citing as these great upholders and, and glorifiers of Islam understood that Islam was actually a religion of conquest. And, and when Obama does this whole routine that they're black and white Muslims, yeah, so what? Well, what, what difference does that make? They're black and white members of ISIS too. In fact, if you remember, back a few weeks, we played an ISIS video, and this was one of ISIS's talking points, is that we're diverse. Right? They're using all leftist talking points, we're diverse. President Obama never at any point got into the nature of Islam, whether there is a connection between Islam and violence. Nowhere in the speech did he do any of this. Instead, he attempted to sever all ties between Islam and violence and pretend that Islam is a wonderful, peaceful, happy religion. It's, it's just Buddhism with Muhammad. 
And that's not true. It's not true. If it were true, then you would have just as much violence inside the Buddhist community or inside the Jewish community or inside the Christian community. And you don't. And just, he just kept going along these lines. President Obama said that TV and film are means of Muslim Americans. I thought that the, the best, uh, honestly, I thought the best line from Obama was, let's see, I think it's 2E here about the Charleston shooting. Here's President Obama talking about the Charleston shooting and just the lack of awareness, the, the, the unbelievable, shocking lack of connection to reality from President Obama here. It's, it, it is astonishing. Here we go. And, in, you know, it was interesting in the discussion I had before I came out, some people said, why is there always a burden on us you know, when a young man in Charleston shoots uh, African-Americans in a church there's not an expectation that every white person in America suddenly is explaining that they're not racist. They can, everybody is assumed to be horrified by that act. Uh, and, and I recognize that, that sometimes that doesn't feel fair. Okay, really? All the white people were assumed to be horrified by Charleston? Did he miss the part where we had a two-month conversation with him going to Charleston and calling for the ripping down of the Confederate flag? because any white person in the South had to be deemed to be racist unless they wanted to get rid of the Confederate flag? Did we, did we miss all of that? Did we miss the part where the entire media declared that this was an emblem of American racism, deep-seated, deep-rooted American racism? The President of the United States, in the wake of Charleston, said that racism was coded into the American DNA. He said that. And here he is saying that, you know, there's a double standard with regard to Muslims, that they're expected to condemn violence in their own community. Okay, at least, honest to God, there's at least a logic to saying that members of a particular philosophy or religion should have to condemn their co-religionists for exploiting the religion for evil purposes. There's not even a logic to saying that white people should have to speak up against other white people on the basis of racist killings. Okay, white is not a philosophy. White is an ethnicity. I don't think all black people have to stand up and say when a black person kills somebody that, well, I guess, you know, blackness doesn't represent this. Of course blackness doesn't represent this. Culture has something to do with it. Islam is a culture. Whiteness is not a culture. It's an ethnicity. But President Obama, just the, the lack of, of connection to reality is truly incredible. All of this is trollery, by the way. All of this is silliness, except for the fact that it does make a difference in the world. The reason this is important, the reason that we spend time on this, is because Obama at one point decided that he was going to rip into all of the right-wingers who suggested that he should link Islam with violence, who said that he should call it radical Islamic terror. He said, no, I won't call it radical Islamic terror. It has nothing to do with Islam in the first place. This is the dominant view on the left. It's the view on some people, of some people on the right. Hugh Hewitt, who I usually respect, he's a colleague over at Salem Radio, he said that he thought this is a great speech by President Obama. What was so great about this speech? What here made Americans safer? What here made American Muslims safer? All this was was President Obama virtue signaling to the diverse, the diversity first chorus on the left, which suggests that ideology and action have nothing to do with the result of your life. And that's stupid. It's truly stupid and it's damaging. And yes, we should be looking at people's philosophy and ideology when we determine whether or not we think it makes them more or less dangerous. There's not a person in America who would think that a neo-Nazi is less dangerous is less dangerous than a nun. There's not a person in the United States. All other things, but you know, that's the only information you have. You know, one's a neo-Nazi and one's a nun. You would assume the neo-Nazi is more dangerous than the nun. Okay, in the United States, if all you know about two people is that one is Muslim and one is Jewish, okay, by percentage, by percentage, more Muslims than Jews are going to commit crimes of terror. End of story. Okay, does that mean that every Muslim is a terrorist? No. It's amazing that we have to keep going over this point. Okay, because people are ignorant of how basic statistics work. Not every Muslim is a terrorist, but if the vast majority of terrorists are Muslims, there might be something wrong with the philosophy. There might be a hole in the philosophy that needs to be filled by Muslims. And when Obama goes to mosques like this and makes excuses for Islam, what he's really doing is relieving the burden from moderate Muslims or would-be moderate Muslims to say anything. And he's not even going to moderate Muslim areas. He's not even going to a moderate Muslim mosque. Take a poll inside that mosque. Ask how many of those Muslims believe the state of Israel should have a right to exist. I guarantee you, it's, it's minute. It's my, and there are Muslims, by the way, who believe that Israel has a right to exist. But those people are sitting in jail over in Indonesia and Malaysia, and Obama doesn't have a damn thing to say about it. The real moderate Muslims are in a, under a lot of pressure out there in the world, and Obama doesn't care about them. He only cares about suggesting that, that all American Muslims are, are perfectly safe and decent. Most of them are. The vast majority are. That doesn't mean 
that we shouldn't understand how risk calculation works. Okay, the insurance company, when it, when it gives you insurance, it understands that there are more dangerous drivers and less dangerous drivers. That's why they give different insurance rates. Doesn't mean they're racist, doesn't mean they're sexist or homophobic. It's called a statistic, gang. Okay, on to the presidential race. Donald Trump, he, he got bashed around for saying this, but this is the only true thing I think Donald Trump has said in the last month. Donald Trump was asked about President Obama speaking at mosque, and here's what Trump had to say. What your thoughts on President Obama went to a mosque today in Baltimore to talk about uh, religious tolerance and to talk about the contributions Muslims have made in the United States. Um, your thoughts about that? I don't have much thought. I think that we can go to lots of places right now. I don't know if uh, he's maybe he feels comfortable there. We have a lot of problems in this country, Greta. There are a lot of places he can go, and he chose a mosque. I saw that just a little while ago, and uh, so that's his decision. That's fine. <laughs> and people were getting all over him. Maybe he feels comfortable in a mosque. Obama says he feels comfortable in mosques. Obama has said that he thinks the, the prettiest sound in the world is the sound of the muezzin call, right, which is the call to prayer, which by no objective standard is a pretty sound. Okay, I can say this as somebody who doesn't actually enjoy Jewish prayer either. Most prayer is not beautiful. Christian prayer, actually, like when, when you sing your songs— and do your happy dances. That's all. That's all good stuff. I'm, I'm into it. But but the, but Jewish prayer, most of it is incredibly boring and mumbly. And the Muezzin call is not objectively pretty. Okay. So, but but yes, Obama feels comfortable in in mosque. Yes, he does. And he felt comfortable in Jeremiah Wright's church, which no one cares about. He feels comfortable in all sorts of places. President Obama does. The only place he doesn't really feel comfortable is with, you know, normal Americans in the middle of Tennessee who go to church and own guns and care about having their family left alone by the federal government. Those people, he's not comfortable around. But lots of diverse crowds, he's very comfortable around. Okay, now to the rest of the presidential news. So Bernie Sanders, so first of all, Donald Trump has gotten a couple of big endorsements. Number one, he got a big endorsement from Jimmy Carter, who came out and said that he, he liked Trump better than he liked Cruz because Trump is malleable and Cruz is not. This is true. So Palpatine has now endorsed Bubba Fett. And... <laughs> I guess that Trump should be excited. I know that Ted Cruz is actually cutting an ad based on Jimmy Carter's endorsement of Trump. Bernie Sanders says he wants Trump also. So Bernie Sanders, he, uh, he was at the debate last night. It was a town hall event, rather. And, and here's what, what Bernie Sanders, Larry David, old man screaming at the moon, had to say about Donald Trump. So I think, and I would love the opportunity. Frankly, I'm prejudiced. I want Trump to win the Republican nomination. And I would love the opportunity to run against them. I think we would win by a lot. <laughs> so big endorsements from Bernie Sanders and Jimmy Carter for Donald Trump. And, uh, and by the way, the entire media is, is getting behind Donald Trump. Trevor Noah, the least funny man in America, who has a show on Comedy Central. Uh, by the way, you're the first person, I think, we together right now are the first people other than Mathis who cut this clip to actually see tape of Trevor Noah doing things. Uh, no one watches this show. Here's Trevor Noah ripping into Ted Cruz, saying that Ted Cruz stole Iowa. This is Trump's case also. Trump is still claiming that, that Iowa was stolen. We'll get into that in a minute. Here is Trevor Noah being dramatically unfunny, as is his want. Here we go. So, so Ben Carson said he was cheated, and uh, Trump says it's all about him. And once again, everybody hates Cruz. Last night when, when CNN posted uh, a news report that, that Ben was not continuing on to New Hampshire, our political team forwarded it to the members of our team. Uh, but unfortunately, they did not then forward the subsequent story uh, that was Ben's campaign clarifying that, that, that he was continuing the campaign and was not canceling the campaign. And, and so I apologize to Ben for that. My respect and ad admiration for Ben could not be higher. Wow. If this is what Ted Cruz does to his friends, it's no wonder Ted Cruz has no friends. <laughs> the slimiest person in the world. I just want to say out there, well, you know what I did, and well, slime. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I guess the truth is there are some things about the campaign that you can predict. Because now we know how the candidates will behave in the rest of the campaign. Trump will try to make it about himself. <laughs> oh. oh. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. Uh, Carson will just disappear. And Cruz will sell his mother if it thinks it'll get him another five points. <laughs> yes, I'm the greatest! Yeah! Oh. Well, that last part's accurate. 
He is not, in fact, the greatest. He is perhaps the worst comedian I have ever seen in my entire life. He's awful at his job. But this is the, this is the case the media want to lay out, is that Cruz is the bad guy in all of this. Okay, to rehash yesterday, CNN reported that Ben Carson was canceling his scheduled stops in places like New Hampshire and South Carolina to travel down to Florida. The Cruz campaign picked up on this, and they subsequently reported to everybody that he was taking a break from campaigning, tell everybody in Iowa that Ben Carson is probably getting ready to drop out, why don't they vote for Cruz? And Carson yesterday held the most bizarre press conference. I don't remember him holding a press conference when, when Donald Trump called him a literal pedophile. He actually did that, if you remember back a few months. But he, didn't see, he called a press conference, and he, and he claimed that Cruz was being a bad Christian and all of this. Today, Ben Carson announced he was cutting 50 campaign staff, 40% of his campaign staff. So yeah, he's quitting. Yes, it's over. And by the way, Ben Carson was the person who gave CNN the information in the first place, as CNN now admits, it says that he was taking a break from campaigning, which was true. I mean, yesterday, just for Ben Carson's own clarification, he said that he was going back to Florida because he had to pick up some laundry. Just for his own clarification, I sent him the addresses of all of the Macy's in the Manchester, New Hampshire area, as well as all of the dry cleaners in the Manchester, New Hampshire area. It turns out there are dry cleaners and Macy's all over the United States, places you can buy clothes everywhere. The one who's actually lying here, and it, it kind of pains me to say this because I think that Carson is generally an honest guy, is Ben Carson. Because Ben Carson knew he was canceling his campaign, basically, and he didn't tell people before Iowa. He already You're telling me that three days ago, five days ago, he didn't know he was going to cut 50% of his staff? Of course he knew that. And he held off until after Iowa, specifically because he wanted to push his campaign a little bit further down the road, raise a little bit more money, but he has no intention of winning New Hampshire. He has no intention of winning South Carolina. His campaign is over. But it doesn't matter. The people who are out to get Cruz are out to get Cruz. And listen, there are plenty of reasons to feel that Ted Cruz is manipulative and terrible and all the rest of this stuff. You want to feel that way? That's your prerogative. But this happens to be a particularly BS attack. This happens to be a particularly BS attack. Trump is still pushing it, by the way. Here's Donald Trump saying that he won, but voter fraud took it away from him. He was cheated. Cheated, he tells you. The polls had me down as winning a little bit. And then when I came in second, it was sort of amazing. Because the person who came in third, they're saying, oh, what a great result. It was unbelievable. I thought he won. In fact, I saw something. I actually thought that was Marco Rubio. I thought he won. I said, man, they're, they're talking like unbelievably. He came in third, more than 2,000 votes behind me. That's a lot of votes. That's a lot of votes. And they said he was right next to number two. Right. He wasn't. So listen to this. So they said, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Came in third. Now, the guy that came in second, but actually, I think I came in first, because if you take a look, okay? You know. Oh, that voter fraud. You know, these politicians are brutal. They're brutal. They are brutal. They are a bunch of dishonest cookies, I want to tell you. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this. It's one of the reasons. So we okay. start off where we, we number three. Every time he says unbelievable, first of all, they should actually play the song. <laughs> but beyond that, you have Donald Trump saying there that it's voter fraud. As we explained yesterday, in order for Ted Cruz to have defraud, they can't find one voter. Forget 6,000 voters. Can't find one voter in Iowa who said he didn't vote for Carson and voted for Cruz because of what happened with this email thing about Carson quitting. And as far as the voter mailer, that everybody's making a big deal about, as I pointed out yesterday. No one in America actually thinks if you didn't vote for Ted Cruz, you were going to jail or you were going to get fined. No one thinks that. But this is the narrative that they're pushing out there now. And the media are, are full bore going after Cruz now. The, the media would rather have Marco Rubio or Trump. I mean, they would, they would certainly prefer Trump. They'd love Trump. Trump raises the ratings. If Trump is the nominee, they've got ratings from here to November easily. If Rubio's the nominee then they feel at least a little comforted because Rubio isn't as hard right and ideologue as Cruz is. I think that he's conservative. I don't think he's as conservative as Cruz, obviously based on his immigration record, among other things. So the media are now going full bore after Cruz. Stephen Colbert said something last night that is so unbelievably racist about Ted Cruz that if a Republican had said this sort of thing, this person would be off TV. Here is Stephen Colbert last night. But now Donald Trump has moved on to accusing a white person of not being from America. Right. Isn't that progress? Now that he's accusing Cruz, <laughs> isn't that racial progress? No In doubt. In some way, you've got to give me that. Well, there, there would be racial progress, but real racial progress would be if a black man 
could say, if I stood in the middle of a street and shot somebody, I would still get votes. That would be racial progress. Okay, so he's talking to Michael Eric Dyson, who is legitimately a very stupid human being. Uh, he's also a professor at Georgetown. By the way, there is a, a black man in America who could, I've said this before, could strangle someone on national TV and get votes. His name is Barack Obama. Okay, Obama did this in 2012. Not the actual strangling, but he'd run everything else into the ground and he still won the election. In any case, Colbert just drops that like it's no big deal, that, that Cruz is a white man from Cuba. Okay, imagine if he said that about Julian Castro. Imagine if he said that Barack Obama was actually a white guy from Hawaii. Because the truth is, Barack Obama grew up a white guy in Hawaii. Okay, Barack Obama is a half-black guy. He grew up with his white grandparents in the least ethnically black state, one of the least ethnically black states in America, in Hawaii. His, his black father was nowhere to be found. He talks about this in Dreams for My Father, his conflict between worlds. But imagine somebody actually said that about Obama. End of the world. Say it about Cruz, no problem. Important to note, 60%, 6-0% of all the votes in Iowa went to non-white candidates on the Republican side. Right? Ben Carson got 10, Cruz got 27, and Rubio got 23. That's two Hispanics and a black guy winning 60% of a nearly all-white crowd of Iowa Republicans. Have you seen that reported anywhere in the mainstream media? Anywhere? You got the first Hispanic to ever win a primary. Has that been reported anywhere? No, of course not, because Cruz isn't legitimately Hispanic. The New York Times ran a piece today saying Cruz was not legitimately Hispanic, and neither was Rubio. But the hatred for Cruz continues uh, on pace. Chris Matthews, no, no Ben Shapiro show episode is, is, is full without a Chris Matthews quote. Here's Chris Matthews on MSNBC bashing Ted Cruz because he, he couldn't have written this stuff himself, Ted Cruz. Somebody had to write it for him. He's a stupid white guy who's kind of Hispanic but not really. Oh, my God, is there a black person? I love black people. Go. Anyway, Trump tweeted today, quote, Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa. He stole it. And he also tweeted, the state of Iowa should disqualify Ted Cruz from the most recent election on the basis that he cheated. A total fraud. That's Trump. Anyway, Ted Cruz hit back again today. Here he is. It is no surprise uh, that Donald is throwing yet another temper tantrum, or if you like, yet another Trumper tantrum. Uh, it seems his reaction to everything is to throw a fit. Donald's insults get more and more hysterical the more and more upset he gets. And that's fine. He can do that. I'm not going to respond in kind. Do you think they're funny? I'm going to I think they're I think they're very funny. I think I wake up every day and laugh at the latest thing Donald has tweeted because he's losing it. Look, we need a commander in chief, not a Twitterer in chief. I don't know anyone who would be comfortable with someone who behaves this way having his finger on the button. I mean, we're liable to wake up one morning, and Donald, if he were president, would have nuked Denmark. You know, let me just offer a little commentary here. Uh, yes, Trump's a little out of hand today because he's angry about losing, but every time I watch Cruz, I get the feeling somebody wrote this crap for him. It can't possibly be coming out of a brain. It can't be coming out of a brain. Somebody wrote this crap for him. I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, I say crap all the time. It comes out of my brain, but some people write stuff for me. I mean, it's on a teleprompter. If you think that there's no teleprompter in front of me when I'm talking, just look, when I talk slowly, there's a teleprompter. When I talk quickly and I, and I slur my consonants together, you have no idea what I'm saying, but it's coming from my brain, my crazy head, the one that got up off this pillow two seconds ago without doing my hair, and I rolled in here, and I sat down in my rumpled suit. Come on, Chris Matthews. Okay, so actually, that's not the best piece of TV. Today, the best piece of TV today was was this thing from Morning Joe, and this I actually want to spend a moment on, um, as though I don't spend enough moments on this particular program. Here, here is Rick Santorum. Uh, Rick Santorum indoor. He dropped out of the race, and he endorsed Marco Rubio yesterday. This morning, he was on with Morning Joe, the worst television show uh, on morning television. Uh, it's it's Mika Brzezinski, who is just she seems like a nasty piece of goods, and Joe Scarborough, who is an equally nasty piece of goods. And they sit next to each other, and you can tell they despise one another. I mean, they cannot stand one another. But then they turn their ire to Republicans, and Joe Scarborough pretends to be Republican sometimes. In any case, they sit there, and they question Rick Santorum, and it gets real awkward. They're asking about his endorsement of Marco Rubio. Here we go. What, 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 do, you, what do you list as Marco Rubio's top accomplishment that, that made you decide to endorse him? Well, I mean, I, I would just say that there's a guy who's uh, been able to, uh, uh, number one, 
uh, win, a, win, win a tough election in Florida and, and, and pull people together from a variety of different uh, spots. This is a guy that uh, I think can uh, work together with people. That's the thing that I like about him the most, that uh, he's, right. he's someone who brings people together and, and at a time with there's such divisiveness in Washington. I was looking for someone uh, that can win this election, and it wasn't right. a divider. And I think that's so, that's the problem I have with right. everybody so, else in the field. So, so he can win. So, but he's been in the Senate for for four years. Can you name uh, his his top top accomplishment uh, in the Senate? Actually, working in the Senate, uh, doing something that that tilted your decision to Marco Rubio. You know, here's what I would say about that. I, my my feeling on Marco is someone who has tremendous potential, tremendous gifts. If you look at being a minority in the United States Senate in a year where nothing got four years, where nothing got done, I guess it's hard to say their accomplishments. I mean, what you t tell me what happened during that four years that was accomplishment for anybody? Well, I but, mean, it was a complete but, but, gridlock. Wait a minute. But, but hold on, hold on. The, the Republicans disturbing. have actually the Republicans have actually been in the majority for the past two years. Uh, well, can, you, can you name one? One thing that he's passed. Okay, well, first thing off, that he's passed in the last okay, two years. Okay, Joe. Joe, look. The Republicans have been a majority in for one year and one month, of which, as you know, he was running for president primarily. The first four right. years, he was in the minority, and nothing got done. And by the way, what happened this year under under the Republicans okay, that he so got what done? You do in Florida? Well, well, I mean, uh, I could list some things that happened, but I'm not defending the Congress. I'm, I'm not being difficult here. I'm just asking you to name one accomplishment. No, I, that I'm Marco just saying the, the problem Rubio, is list the one accomplishment, that, just one, just one that Marco achieved. Maybe a bill that he wrote. Maybe a. Uh, uh, a, a moment in a committee. Right. Like Jeb Bush I, ran Florida. Donald Trump built a company. Marco Rubio finished the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> the, okay. Marco Rubio was number one, the Speaker of the Florida House, and uh, which something that's a minor minor deal. I mean, he was right. elected by his I mean, this is the point. They've made their point, right? You can't name what Marco Rubio has done. Okay. First of all, let me name you a few political figures who we have no idea what they did before they were actually president: FDR, JFK, Barack Obama, Abraham Lincoln. None of them did anything before they were president of the United States. None of them did anything. And I think it's important to mention, you know, Mike at the very end, she says something like, you know, the Florida, Jeb Bush was governor of Florida. She didn't name an accomplishment, she named an office. Okay, that's not an accomplishment, but she says Jeb Bush was governor of Florida. And then she says that Donald Trump built a business. Hey, first of all, if you're an executive in a state, it's easier to say you accomplished something because you're the executive of the state. If you built a company, you can say you built a company because you built the company. If you're a senator, very few senators can say they have accomplished something. And usually when they have, it's something unbelievably crappy. Like John McCain, his signal accomplishment in the Senate was campaign finance reform, a terrible accomplishment. Right? Mitt Romney, his big accomplishment as governor of Massachusetts was Romney care, a garbage accomplishment. So I'm going to make the case right now that I don't want politicians who have accomplishments. I want politicians who generally have no accomplishments because I don't care about accomplishments. If you have them, great. If you don't, I don't care. Here's the fact. Donald Trump built a business. Does this qualify him to be president? Absolutely not. Bill Gates built a business that is 10 times, 100 times bigger than Donald Trump's business, and I don't want him to be president because he's wrong on crap. Just because you know how to build a business doesn't mean that you believe the right things for running the country. And it turns out the founders didn't want our politicians accomplishing things. This was not their goal. The, the, the Constitution is specifically designed to stop people from accomplishing things. The more politicians accomplish, the more they invade your freedom. The only way a politician can accomplish something is by taking something away from you. They have nothing they can do on their own. The only thing politicians do is legislate things about your life. That's all they do. So the best politicians to me are the presidents who didn't do anything, right? Calvin Coolidge, not famous for his accomplishments. Awesome president because he didn't do anything. They're the only time that, you've, that you actually need a president to do something is when he is rolling back all of the other stupid crap that the accomplishing presidents did in the first place. And people say, how about Obama? Isn't he a good example of somebody who didn't accomplish somebody and then he went in and he was terrible? Yes, but he was terrible because he was an ideologue, not because he hadn't accomplished anything. I liked him way better when he hadn't accomplished anything. Now he's accomplished crap. I hate him way more. His accomplishments are terrible, right? I would prefer that he had not accomplished anything. I prefer he'd gone through his entire administration and never accomplished anything. So this, this whole question is dumb in the first place. What have you accomplished as a politician? What have you accomplished? If I'm interviewing someone for CEO, I want to know what he's accomplished. But being president of the United States is about having the right principles and staying out of our lives. What I'd like to know, honestly, look, it's amazing to me. Everybody was all over Romney in 2012. Oh, he fired people. He laid people off at Bain Capital. 
That's a great accomplishment for being president. I would like to see the president lay off three quarters of the executive staff. That would be a great accomplishment. Not to build it up again. I don't want it built up. I want all those people fired. I want them out. I don't want to spend money on them. They're a waste of time and space and money. Okay, But there's this idea, and it really is nasty and, and counterproductive, that politicians are there to do stuff. Politicians are not there to do stuff. Politicians are there to protect my right and leave me alone and stop other politicians from doing stuff. This is why we have checks and balances. If politicians were there to accomplish something, you could just have a bureaucracy that decides everything. This has been the problem with the country for the last hundred years or so. It was better when there were checks and balances so that we didn't get anything done. Getting nothing done was awesome. People left us alone for the most part. You can basically name on one hand in the United States the number of really vital, necessary pieces of legislation that were passed. And they were usually passed as constitutional amendments. And those, there was no dissent anyway because it was passed by two-thirds of the, two-thirds of the Senate and three-fifths of the states. So it's, the whole thing is, is ridiculous. So that, that sort of question is stupid. By the way, you never hear anybody on the left ask, what is Hillary Clinton's big accomplishment? Because her big accomplishments are all garbage. She left Libya a smoking garbage heap. She left Syria a trash fire. Right? Hillary Clinton is a disaster. All of her accomplishments are counter-accomplishments. In fact, even her own people will say this. They'll say, oh, what's her biggest accomplishment? She racked up more miles on her plane than any secretary of state ever. Right, great, so does luggage. It doesn't mean anything. So I, I actually get frustrated at this. I, I don't know what Ted Cruz has accomplished. Good, I don't need him to accomplish something. The question is, will he stop people from doing things that ruin my life? Right, that is the, that is the idea for me. Donald Trump, I don't care whether he built a hotel in New York. Why does that, what do I care? Good for him, whatever. I'm not interested in, in that. I'd rather, I would vote for a consistent, conservative, homeless man who has never accomplished anything in his life but has never taken a dime from the federal government over Donald Trump. I would, because Donald Trump is not a consistent conservative, and he's taken money from the federal government, the, the, well, the state government, through eminent domain. And so I'm not going this, to, this whole thing, he accomplished stuff, it's dumb. It's dumb. That's not the goal of the president. It's not, what, once the president went from basically a bureaucrat who would leave you alone to a popular celebrity rock star who was supposed to fix your life, that's when the country really went in the crapper. Okay, so... A couple of more points, because after all, we got behind. We're, we're a little over time, but not even close, gang. All right, so Hillary Clinton had her, had her town hall last night. And the good news is that no matter how dysfunctional things become on the right side of the aisle, there's always Hillary there to bail people out. Hillary Clinton was asked during this, this town hall whether she still believes in the vast right-wing conspiracy. Here's Hillary Clinton on this. You mentioned attacks on the early 90s. Right. Do you still believe there's a vast right-wing conspiracy? Don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's gotten even better funded. Uh, you know, they brought in some new multi-billionaires to pump them in. And uh, look, these guys play for keeps. They want to control our country. Senator Sanders and I agree on that completely. They want to rig the economy so they continue to get richer and richer. They could care less about income inequality. They solve their consciences by giving big money to philanthropy and, you know, getting great pictures of them standing in front of whatever charity they donated to. But okay, make pause no it right mistake, there for a second. They want Hillary Clinton runs a charity that gets money from rich people and lots of rich people and lots of foreign nations, it turns out. So she's the one providing them cover. And she says, oh, these multi-billionaires who control the economy. So what's her solution? A bigger government that controls the economy. Also, a bigger government that works with all of those rich people who she used to work with. So, a minute later, she was asked about the fact that, Hillary, here you are playing the populist card. There's this vast right-wing big business conspiracy to get you. Didn't you take $675,000 from Goldman Sachs to speak for them? Here's Hillary Clinton's answer. One of the things... One of the things that Senator Sanders points to and a lot of your critics point to is you made three speeches for Goldman Sachs. You were paid $675,000 for three speeches. Was that a mistake? I mean, was that a bad error in judgment? Look, I made speeches to lots of groups. I told them what I thought. I answered questions. But did you have to be paid $675,000? Well, I don't know. Um, that's what they offered. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, every, every Secretary of State that I know has done that. But that's oh, just once their office and not running for an office again. Well, I didn't you must know. Have known. To be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't committed to running. I didn't 
I didn't know whether I would not. You didn't not. think you were going to run for president again? I, I didn't. I, you know, when I was Secretary of State, several times <laughs> Okay, I said, we can pause it there. She, yeah. she, she blew herself up right there, right? Well, that's what they offered. So she spends her... I can't be bought by the big business people, those big business people who are out to get me because they want to rig the economy. I can't be bought. So you took like $700,000 from those people. Well, that's what they offered. Okay, this is like, it's like an actual honest-to-God whore standing there saying, I can't be bought. And they say, well, but you had a $1,000 night with that rich businessman from New York the other night. I mean, it's what he offered. I mean, I sort of had to take it, right? He offered it. I took it. I mean, come on. What am I going to do? Turn the money down? I can't be bought, though. I can't be bought. I mean, except for that. Except for the whole being a whore thing. Okay? It's just, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and she gets away with it. She says, well, that's what they offered. And everybody in the crowd laughs. All these Democrats. Because they're all hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. And I think I've told this story before, but just a, a, it's probably about three years ago now. My wife and I were walking around uh, in in our neighborhood, and we saw somebody who lived at the condo complex that we used to live in. And we said hello. He's a liberal, obviously. And and so we started talking about where do you how's it working out with your nanny? He said, "How's your nanny working out?" We said, "You know, it's good. It's it's good. It's a little expensive, but it's good. You know, in order to pay your nanny kind of going rate in the state of California and pay for all the the taxes you're supposed to pay and to hire somebody who's legal, which is a major issue." In California, you're paying somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars a year for a nanny. Right? I mean, it's an actual expensive job. Uh, and the and this guy says, "Well, you know, I just pay my help under the table. I just pay my help cash. Illegal immigrants under the table." And I thought to myself, "You douchebag! Like you're the guy who votes for minimum wage has to apply to nannies." You're the guy who says, I have to pay higher taxes. You're the guy who votes for all this stuff. And then what do you do? You're a hypocrite because the rules don't apply to you. You're allowed to pay cash under the table. Listen, I'd be happy to pay anybody who's willing to do the job. And this has always been my rule. If you're willing to do the job and you're not taking money from the government, I am happy to pay you to do the job. I don't care. It's not my job to screen you. It is my job to get the best possible help for my kid at the best available price. People on the left say they don't believe this, but then they turn around and they hire people under the table while they're forcing people who actually abide by the law to pay more money. This is Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats who are cheering for her. Oh, Goldman Sachs is terrible. Oh, Wall Street's awful. Oh, Wall Street's in the thrall of Washington and Washington's being bought by Wall Street. They gave you 600 debt. Well, that's what they were offering. <laughs> Just douchebags. It, 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 it is amazing. And this is why I think Sanders is climbing in the polls as he should be. Last night on Twitter, by the way, I did offer $1,000 to the Sanders campaign if Bernie Sanders will endorse slavery reparations. I will give, I, I honest to God, will sign a $1,000 check to the Sanders campaign if he endorses slavery reparations just because I want to see Hillary collapse into a pile of ash. Because that's what actually would happen. She's outlived her time in terms of, she's like a fairy tale character. You know, it's one of those things, like at the end of Tangled. We have the person who's been kept unnat on unnatural life support for prolonged periods of time and then they sort of disintegrate as they, as they fall out the tower toward the ground. That's Hillary in politics. Obviously, she should live. She should be well. She should have a nice long life being a horrible person. But beyond that, you know, the, I just want to see her go down in flames politically because it is highly amusing to me. By the way, Hillary Clinton, the lady who's ripping on Goldman Sachs there. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I just take a little money from Goldman Sachs. Same lady who says she's not in, in bed with Wall Street. Here is a, um, a picture of Hillary Clinton. You can see she's there with her good friend Chuck Schumer, and she's there with Michael Bloomberg, and she's holding a shovel. No, not to, mar not to bury the bodies of the women her husband has raped. No, this is, this is a different shovel. She's there holding a shovel because this is the groundbreaking for the Goldman Sachs building. She was in the Senate at the time in 2005. But no, she can't be bought. All right. A couple of things that I like. Uh, well, a thing that I like, and then a couple of things that I hate. Okay, so a thing that I like, I'm a big fan of science fiction. There are very few really good science fiction books. Most science fiction books are really quite terrible. Uh, there, there are some fantasy books that are really good. The best fantasy book of all time is actually not Lord of the Rings, uh, it, which is overwritten. The best fantasy book of all time is The Once and Future King by T.H. White. The second half of, of The Once and Future King by T.H. White is absolutely magnificent, so you should take a look at that. But in terms of, in terms of science fiction... The best science fiction book probably ever is one they just made into a series on, uh, on sci-fi, which is, which is Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Really, really great book, a very thought-provoking book. Uh, and, you know, Clavin, I heard him talk about sci-fi the other day, and he was saying that he doesn't like sci-fi so much because it's not as much about character and it's more about ideas. That's why I like sci-fi. I like ideas and, uh, and character. It depends on the character, but 
most people are not that interesting. Ideas are more interesting. So uh, that's why I like nonfiction, philosophy, and sci-fi. Okay, uh, a couple of things that, well, one thing I hate. We'll do one thing I hate. Michael Eric Dyson, you saw, was on with Stephen Colbert. And Michael Eric Dyson is a fast-talking dude. I mean, this guy, he can fit more, he, he talks more quickly than I do, which is saying a lot. And he says way less than I do, which isn't saying a lot, because come on, you don't get better content anywhere on the internet than right here. Here's Michael Eric Dyson last night on Colbert saying that what Republicans really want to do is go back in time like Marty McFly and kill Obama's parents. Monkey, Simeon, witch doctor. Look at the racial overlay. He's from Kenya. Can we trust you? There's all kinds oh, of yeah. racial stigmatization. 43% of uh, Republicans believe he's a Muslim, 15% of Democrats, and like 23% of independents. Right. As Jerry Seinfeld says, not that there's any problem with that, but the reality is the guy's a Christian. He's been in the church for 20 some years, and he's been dismissed. You know, the Republicans don't believe in abortion, but they want to retroactively remove him from birth. They want to distance him from his own body. And I think, look, when you you think about the fact. What does that even mean? And, and the idiot crowd when cheering. Think, when you think about the fact, the idiot crowd cheers. They want to retroactively remove him from. What does that even mean? What are you talking about? Do they want to go back and separate his parents, and he disappears while he's playing Johnny Be Good or something? Like, what are you talking about? This doesn't even make sense. What he's saying. By the way, you want to know why most? Why, why not most? Why many Americans think Obama's a Muslim? He's not. By the way, he's an atheist. The reason the president, they think that President Obama is a Muslim is because President Obama, the only time he speaks with reverence about religion is when he is speaking about Islam. Every time he talks about Christianity, it is only to rip on Christianity in the past so that he can excuse the activities of Islam. President Obama grew up in a Muslim country in Indonesia. President Obama is clearly very warm toward Islam as a philosophy. He's not a Muslim, by the way. He's not. But that's why people think he is, wrongly. And what I find really amusing here is you got Michael Eric Dyson saying, no, he's been a Christian. He's a Christian for decades. He's all real, but we can't talk about his church, right? He's a Christian, but the minute you mention Jeremiah Wright, you're a racist. I mean, by the way, who, who, who's been calling Obama a simian or a monkey? Has anybody been doing that? I missed it. If you are, you're a racist. Don't do it. I missed the vast swaths of people who have been doing this. I also, Michael Eric Dyson, he's like a spoken word artist when he does the whole, Ken, he's from Kenya. Can we trust him? Yeah, very clever. Okay, Eggy Eggs. Uh, okay. Now, finally, um, the, let's uh, let's do a couple of letters from the mailbag. Cause what the what the f? I mean, we're we're so far beyond time now. All right. So so here here we go. The, here here is a a letter from from a guy named Jared. He says, "Dear Ben, could you use your advice right now? I'm in a feud with one of my university professors dealing with Ta-Nehisi Coates, reparations, and institutional racism. Yes, I know. I'm stupid and went against one of your rules for debating leftists. Correct. Don't do it." So, but he, he continues, and he, and he talks about, he, he, he says, what should I do? He says, I've used facts about black imprisonment rates and everything like that. She's quoting Ta-Nehisi Coates to justify her stance that racism continues to this date and all that nonsense. So I slap on a Bernie Sanders button, act like a good little socialist, and preach white privilege. Monday, she'll probably try to put me in a gotcha moment to prove her point. Any tips? Okay. So, Jared, number one. Think about your grade. That's the only thing that matters here. Okay, there, you, when you engage in a conversation, you first have to assess whether the conversation is worth it. And look, we're talking creatures. We're people who love community. We like to talk with one another. But if you're smart, what you ought to do is before every conversation, except the ones with your spouse, which half of those will be useless, but in the end, you know, it'll be fun. Uh, aside from family and spouse, you should assess whether a conversation is worth it as a general matter before you engage in the conversation. If this conversation is going to end with you getting a bad grade, slap on the Bernie Sanders button, act like a good little socialist, get the A, then make a lot of money, become a trustee of the university, and get this broad fired. Do that. That's, that's a better plan. If your goal is to humiliate her in front of a lot of people, then you should probably ask her why it is. Does she think that white privilege has become more of an issue or less of an issue over the last 50 years? And if it's become less of an issue, then why is it that black single motherhood rates are up, poverty rates are up, lack of education is up, and crime is up? These would all be good questions. So you can start with those. Okay. This one from Roy in Colorado. Hey, Ben, writing in to say I found it funny how Bernie Sanders can clamor about student loan debt and no college graduate deserves to be in tens of thousands of dollars of debt, but he'll enact policies that increase the national debt by $19 trillion. How bad does debt really concern him? Well, okay, the, the fact is that, Roy, I appreciate the note, he doesn't care about debt that goes to the country because he thinks that he's just going to murder the rich people and use their entrails to pay the debt. That's basically Bernie Sanders' plan. As we mentioned yesterday, 
He is going to take their heads and he is going to put them on pikes and he is going to rob the anuses for all their money and then he is going to then he's going to wobble them around like in like in Tropic Thunder and then we will sing Reading Rainbow as we march in a circle. That is the plan for relieving the national debt. So he doesn't care. National debt all goes to the rich people as opposed to those poor, starving artiste students. Mm-hmm. Okay, question from George. I always watch Bill Maher's real-time show because of a streak of masochism. Fair. He usually has a conservative on his panel in some attempt to provoke discussion and to appear fair. I've often wondered why you are not on that panel. Are you not asked or do you refuse? I'm not asked. That's the answer. I would go on Bill Maher's show, but leftists don't like having me on their shows, particularly if those shows are live, because it ends poorly for leftists. I have a long history of this. Go to YouTube, find any show I have ever appeared on with leftists live. It does not end well for the leftist. And so usually what ends up happening is one of two things. They don't know who I am, they invite me on and it goes poorly, or they realize who I am and they don't invite me at all. Those are the two options that are, that are usually out there. There's a reason I haven't been invited back on Dr. Drew. Right? Even though, by the way, Dr. Drew's people apparently are telling some of my friends who appear on Dr. Drew that the most attention the Dr. Drew show on HLN ever got was the time that I appeared on that show. But that's okay. Dr. Drew's a smoking garbage heap of a host. He's just a, a garbage host on a garbage network with a garbage show. So I, I don't really care. I have more people who watch this show than actually watch Dr. Drew's show. Uh, Dr., Dr. Drew is what, what, a, what a terrible host. You know, just, just point of fact, I just have to note this. One time, he, I know he's friendly with Adam Carolla. They do a show together, but Dr. Drew, Adam had me call into his show one time. Dr. Drew was on it. You can look this up on the internet. And Dr. Drew actually said to me that the incident that I had on Dr. Drew's show, he said, nobody even would have noticed it if you hadn't covered it over at Breitbart. And I said to him, if your case is that you run an incredibly crappy show that no one watches, I agree. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's just, it is amazing. Okay, one last letter here. Hey, Ben, love the podcast. is from Dan. I have a question about income inequality and the figures cited in a Slate article that, quote, today, depending on whose estimate you choose, the average CEO makes anywhere from 272 to 354 times more as much as the average worker. Is this calculation accurate or a misrepresentation? Can you comment on the ethics of that stat, assuming that it is accurate? These stats are always conveyed as negative and are the types of examples which seem to be a big part of Bernie Sanders' message for what it's worth. I'm British. I live in the U.S., Launching you trounce Piers Morgan is still one of my favorite TV moments. Okay, so is that statistic accurate? To the best of my knowledge, that is an accurate statistic, that, that the average CEO makes 272 times as much as the average worker. I, but that, that it's not the average CEO. It's the average CEO. The average of all CEO incomes is probably 272 times that of the average worker, meaning that if the CEO of one company makes $400,000 a year and you have one CEO who's making $20 million a year, then they average those two, and the average CEO salary is now whatever halfway between those two points is. The average CEO salary is now $10 million. That doesn't mean the there, there's a difference between median and average, in other words. And so that statistic is a little bit skewed because the truth is most CEOs are CEOs of small businesses, and they aren't making that much money. Um, but beyond that, it's always funny. You never hear people on the left say the average NBA player makes 400 times what the average, the average employee of the same basketball team makes. You never hear that because – Everybody understands what generates the value is the basketball player. Everybody understands that what generates the value, theoretically, is the CEO. Now, there's a good case to be made that the CEO is, is not the one generating all the value, that CEOs are overrated in terms of their importance. That's a case that you can make to various boards, and the boards will either take it seriously or not, and then they can maybe hire somebody for cheaper. That's fine. That's their call. But it's a voluntary transaction. And by the way, if you fire the CEO of McDonald's, who makes, I think, $10 million a year, and redistribute his income, everybody who works for McDonald's will make, like, three bucks more a year. So it won't help anything. Okay, you can't just redistribute income from one to the other. It, it is amazing how, how you know, they, they use income inequality as their measure. You hear Hillary say, income inequality is the worst thing ever. Okay, Hillary, give up all your money now. I agree. It's terrible. Give up all your money. You're worth $100 million, you and your husband. You're going to sit there lecturing the rest of us about income inequality? Or maybe you took the money from Goldman Sachs because when someone offers you money in a voluntary transaction, you're allowed to take it. One is true or the other is true. You don't get to lecture us all about income inequality and then take as much money as you want as soon as it's offered. If the transaction is voluntary and it's a good transaction, you have nothing to whine about. If not, then you better give up all your wealth because you are cheating everyone else according to your own lights 
and your own standards. Okay, we have indeed, re- this is the lo- officially the longest episode of the Ben Shapiro Show ever. Uh, get a few sad sighs there and, and one half-hearted yay. And, uh, and then we've reached, we've reached the end of the week. Next week, there will be much more to talk about. We'll have a day before the, before the New Hampshire primaries. Those happen on Monday, but we'll have a Republican debate to rehash. We'll have a Democratic debate to rehash. And presumably Donald Trump will have actually spontaneously combusted at that point, And we'll have to talk about what's left of his singed mane. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 